How we relate to ourselves and how we relate to others is at the core of mental health and well-being. Relationships can be supportive and fulfilling, but they can also be abusive and toxic. We invited Debbie Holcomb, a social worker and K-State instructor, to shed some light on this sensitive topic. Debbie has over 27 years of experience at the community and state level working with crime victims, and we hope that by listening to this episode, you can better understand intimate partner violence, be a resource to others, and learn how to relate to yourself and others better. We understand that this is a very sensitive topic, so the Thrive Navigators want to offer a content warning for this week's episode. This episode, we will be discussing intimate partner violence and sexual abuse, which may be activating to some listeners. If you are not in an environment or place in your life where this will be safe or even manageable for you to listen to, please consider not listening to this episode and catching us in a later one or listening at a time when you feel more supported and with someone who cares about you. As always, it may be a good idea to plan some self-care afterwards, and if you're a K-State student, counseling services are available. Welcome to Thrive at Kansas State University. I'm Cole Griffin. And I'm Chris Bowman. Yeah, and with the pandemic, just um, doing recordings for classes, which I I am very comfortable teaching and being in front of a classroom and um, doing PowerPoints and preparing them, but to tape them and have them seem effective and I say etc a lot and you know you just see all those things that you don't really oh, yeah. know so yeah and then I always think too it's helpful when I'm actually interacting with someone because then I can kind of track if they're on the same page that I am with a recording you're just like talking and hoping that the information is <laughs> is being heard mm-hmm. yes yes most definitely yeah well are we ready mm-hmm. all yeah, right I'm ready cool well we are very excited to have you here, Debbie, to talk about intimate partner violence. And I was wondering if we could start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and why this conversation is so important. Um, yes, um, I have been in the field of victim services for quite a few years, um, about 25 years. Um, and I'll start off with it's really important because it impacts everybody. Mm. It doesn't matter what we're doing, what our career is where we work, where we live, intimate partner violence touches everybody in our, in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, I started out um, actually as a, a student in the social work program and I, we had to do volunteer hours. Mm-hmm. So I went to, I heard that you could get, you know, 24 hours counted towards your volunteer time. At that time we had to have hundred hours. And uh, if I went to the crisis center, which is a program here that serves victims of intimate partner violence and sexual violence. And so I went to the volunteer training, think I was just going to knock out 24 um, hours. And I sat down and it was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. Hmm. So um, I have worked as a volunteer at the crisis center for victims of intimate partner violence and sexual violence. I worked in the courthouse in Gary County as an advocate for um, victims. And I was also um, a night staff at the shelter where I stayed all night. So great, great learning ground about people and their lives. And um, because that's the... um, Things have to be really awful for somebody to go to take themselves and their children into mm-hmm. a shelter. Mm-hmm. So, and then I, um, after I got my master's degree, I went to the Kansas Department of Corrections. They had no victim services department at all. So um, I created it and served 
victims of all types of crimes that were connected to offenders in Kansas and developed lots of programs um, that I hope were victim-centered and trauma-informed. That was my hope. And then um, I had the opportunity to um, work for the Governor's Domestic Violence Fatality Review Board. And that is a board that um, looked at intimate partner homicides in Kansas in hopes of making recommendations to reduce homicides and um, improve policies, statutes, um, and so on. And while I was doing that, I was the analyst for the board. While I was doing that, I um, became an adjunct for Kansas State uh, Social Work Department. And, um, and then three years ago, I started full time and I teach an intimate partner violence and social work class. So that's kind of my history with uh, victim services and intimate partner violence. Awesome. Well, we're super ha uh, happy to have you here that we can draw from that well of knowledge. Um, we touched on it a little bit. It sounds like, I mean, intimate partner violence is just such a huge issue that affects so many people. And we're not, for as big as the issue is, we're not talking about it nearly enough. And um, you touched on it a little bit in your background, but what got you interested in specifically intimate partner violence? Um, I was thinking about that. And, you know, when I was in high school, I saw it all around me and I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a really good friend who once, when I was 18, um, ran into my apartment after she had been thrown out of her car mm -hmm. by her boyfriend at the time. Still didn't know what it was. Didn't mm -hmm. know how to what what it was, why it was happening. And then um, when I was 21, I had a really good friend who had been a roommate who was talking on her phone on her bed, and her boyfriend told her to get off the phone, and she didn't do it. And he literally shot her in the face and wow. killed her immediately. And I think um, that, and then just getting into social work and realizing, oh, there is there are things that can be done, and we do need to shine a light on it mm -hmm. um and then just you know going to a program where mm -hmm. they're doing really good work was a big motivator yeah so a lot of a lot of people that were in your life had been touched by intimate partner violence and it sounds like it's kind of happening whether we acknowledge it or not Yes, yes, yes. and even when i was at the department of corrections they said oh debbie we only have um, three offenders in the 9,000 prisoners that we have. We only have three offenders that are um, here for domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And um, But now, if you talk to the Department of Corrections, there's been a lot of policies and procedures put in place where people even self-identify if they're there for um, intimate partner violence. And the, you know, the... Um, the prevalence is closer to like 46% of them have oh, some wow. some form of intimate mm -hmm. that we know of. Mm -hmm. So it is so prevalent and we just, yeah, we don't talk about it enough. For sure. Um, before we get too far into it, do you have like an, a comprehensive definition of what intimate partner violence is? I do um, because because some people do get really confused about what is intimate partner violence, what is a, um, you know, a bad day, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And what's really important is that it's a pattern yeah. So in a relationship, um, that it's a pattern of, of 
abusive and coercive behavior. And the behavior is used to gain dominance and control hmm. of one partner over the other. And it can include legal and illegal tactics and behaviors. It doesn't have to be illegal to be considered intimate partner violence. And most importantly, it undermines the sense of uh, the victim's sense of safety and um, free will. Hmm. So um, that's the definition that most um, people who work in the field use mm -hmm. as their foundation. Yeah. And as you were as you were speaking, it sounds like there's quite a range, too. When we think about intimate partner violence, we think a lot of like corrections and um, people who have been in prison or something like that. It sounds like there's quite a range of what it can affect. Right. It does not. Like I said, it doesn't have to be illegal and it can it can be completely and totally in the relationship, emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. And there, it doesn't necessarily always move to physical abuse because that is what we think. We think physical abuse. Mm -hmm. So, and it's really hard to, I think for, um, if we think about it and we think about how we really don't talk about it, you know, if you think about what our society, how they portray victims of intimate partner violence. So, um, you know, a lot of people, their mind automatically goes to like a show like the cops mm -hmm. and, um, you know, where they're uneducated and they're poor and there's always alcohol involved and those stereotypes. Um, that's what people tend to think is intimate partner violence, which can really, um, make it hard for people to reach out for help or to know that it's, you know, not okay mm -hmm. um, because they don't want to be identified as that stereotype of what we see on TV is what a victim looks like. Yeah. I think an experience that a lot of people have had is that as they learn about intimate partner violence, they identify maybe some ways in their own life that they've been affected by it. And I think it surprises them. Um, I know for me sitting in social work classes, there were times when I would hear things about intimate partner violence and be like, wait a second, I've been in relationships where that has been the case, or I've seen relationships where that has been the case. Um, another part that you touched on was like the different kinds of abuse. So maybe we can go through and walk through each of those so we can identify um, the different kinds of abuse. Sure. There's, um, there's emotional abuse, which is, um, you know, cutting people down, talking about them and keep in mind, this is a pattern. So mm -hmm. yep. um, if you get in a fight on a Friday night with your boyfriend and one time you say, you know, a nasty word to them, that does not mean we're looking for patterns. There's sexual abuse. Sexual abuse is really, in my experience, the hardest thing for people to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and that is really in sexual abuse. There's a, a range of that as well from, you know, making fun of body parts all the way up to rape. Mm -hmm. um, and everything in between. And then, um, there's financial abuse. That's a huge issue, yep. um, too, um, abusing somebody financially. And that comes in different forms from, um, having complete control over the, um, finances in a relationship, uh, to having control, but not contributing at all and coercing and forcing the other partner to go to work and work several jobs, those types of things. Mm -hmm. And then there's physical abuse as well. And that can range from pushing, just pushing your partner, restraining your partner, uh, all the way to, of course, homicide and everything in between. So there's different types of abuse. 
for I, sure. I think having uh, the definition of intimate partner violence we just talked about and then the different types, I think that's a really key thing for people to have as a, as a working or not, a, but a definition of what it is. Just like Cole said, you know, you, you think back because the stereotypes, they're there. Um, and just like you said, people don't want to see themselves in those roles. So mm -hmm. sometimes it's easier for them not to see themselves in those roles or what stereotype roles are. So I think that's something that's really valuable is letting people know what it is. Yes. Because I'm, you know, I'm kind of in the same boat. You know, you think back and that's the first part of educate, educating people on it. I feel like, I mean, there's a whole aspect of it, but getting that definition out, I think is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking too, just, um, that a lot of people frame it primarily in like the physical abuse aspect. So a lot of, I've, I've even heard friends say, well, he hasn't hit me yet. So that's, that'll be the final straw mm -hmm. or like, that's what I'll look for to know if it's an intimate partner issue. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in relationships, you will have um, the abusive partner be physical early on and, um, and then the victim no longer demonstrates the same behavior again mm. so they can have a long relationship and they're never the abusive partner doesn't hit them again because they don't have to because the victim learned um if i do this then i'm i'm going to be hit so mm -hmm. and then you have relationships where um, the abuse the physical when it gets physical it gets worse and worse and worse as time goes on exactly um, another thing that stuck out to me as you were going through each different type is that I think sexual abuse isn't something we always pin almost because if someone's in a relationship with someone, it's almost as if anything that happens in that relationship sexually is consensual, consensual. and okay. Mm -hmm. um, but that is not the case. That is not the case. That is not the case. And, um, you know, there's lots of situations where the abusive partner will videotape or now with phones. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's, there's that there's blackmail mm -hmm. there. And that is a form of coercion and control over um, their partner as well. Yeah, I'm wondering too, is there like enough legal protections even surrounding sexual abuse? Because I think, especially when you were mentioning um, blackmailing people with the news, I don't know if there's any laws surrounding people getting protected in those situations. Yeah, I don't know the, um, I, I do know that Kansas uh, for many years had a law that you were, it wasn't illegal to rape your own wife. Mm -hmm. um, so I know that law has been changed and I know there's been movement to um, look at what we're talking about where there's that um, that blackmail, but I don't know enough about it mm -hmm. to speak as an expert on the, the laws that are happening right now. Yeah. Um, another question I had was how is intimate partner violence di different from just like an unhealthy relationship? Yeah. So when, when a relationship is healthy, then they're normally able to talk about their feelings in a respectful manner. Um, if it's unhealthy, then, um, you know, a person's feelings or needs are usually ignored. If it's unhealthy, disagreements often turn into fights. Mm. So if you disagree with me, then we're going to fight about it instead of having that mutual respect. Um, and then not being able to um, have the opportunity to or the comfort to um, explore, communicate feelings with your partner or within the relationship. Um or if people feel embarrassed to talk to their partner about their feelings. Those are all unhealthy um, 
attributes of a um, unhealthy relationship. Um, abusive is when there's, you know, it moves to control. Mm. Um, when the partner is actively, um, you know, being disrespectful and um, cutting the person down, cutting their p- partner down and things like that. Um, and when somebody is really afraid to disagree. It's, a di- it's one thing to be embarrassed about disagreeing, which is an unhealthy relationship. But when you're afraid, that is when it's moving into abusive. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, a word that stuck out to me there was control. It seems like power dynamic is what shifts it from unhealthy to abusive. Yes, yes. What are some warning signs that you might be in an abusive relationship as, as someone who's in the relationship themselves? Right. Some ways that you know is um, for yourself is that you can't do anything right. Your partner is extremely jealous um, and they don't. I also want to make it clear that not all of these things have to be occurring, but these are warning signs that something is not okay. Mm-hmm. So um, a really big one is discouraging you from bringing or going around family and friends. Um, that's a really big one because that's um, a form of isolation, which is a very controlling factor in abusive relationships. Insulting you, but especially in front of others, hmm. uh, that that means that the level of abuse is a little bit higher if people are willing to do that in front of other people. Preventing you from making your own decisions. Like, I want to go get my hair done today, or I want to go for a run at six o'clock in the morning and the partner says, no, you can't do that as you, as though you don't have your own free, mm-hmm. uh, free will. Um, and then definitely if there's sexual things that they want you to do that you're uncomfortable with, that's also another red flag that you're in an abusive relationship. Mm. Um, I guess I just, it just left my mind. Oh, um, what, what do you think? If there was, I don't know how to word this, but what what do victims need from their support systems if they're in an abusive relationship? That's a really good question. Everybody has different needs, first of all. So being able to start where they are is really important. So everybody needs something different. But I can tell you what they don't need is to be judged. Mm. So they need people to talk to them openly and with kindness and not with judgment. There are a lot of different reasons that um, people stay within an abusive relationship. Um, But they need to also be believed there's, I have done trainings across the state of Kansas where I've had people say that would never happen. Hmm. You know, when I'm mm-hmm. giving examples, I have examples I, I, of real lives where really horrible things happen. So believing them and then also assuring them that it's not their fault is something they need. And then resources, mm-hmm. whatever resources. And when I say resources, it could be anything that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. It could be childcare. It could be um advocating with the um with the campus mm-hmm. for certain things so that it's all resources can be different for different people yeah so there, there could be some confusion um about why someone might stay in an abusive relationship what are some common reasons that someone might stay in an abusive relationship um one of them is fear what i have found in my experience is that um, that's the biggest reason people say and um, again, if we go back to that stereotype of what a victim looks like, fear that they will be seen as weak, 
um, but also fear of the abusive partner and the threats that they have made. Mm. Because it's very common for um, those that are being abusive to make all kinds of threats against their partner. Um, So there's that. There also can be financial reasons where there's no way this person is going to be okay, especially if there's children involved, if the um, partner's not there. And when I I want to go back a little bit on the fear because um, when we think about safety, our society automatically goes to um, they have to leave to be safe. Mm. And sometimes leaving is the least safe thing to do. It can actually increase the danger in some in some relationships. So um, that's something that we need to um, take into consideration. And uh, also love. Mm-hmm. They they love their partner. <laughs> they believe their partner is going to change. Um, there are a lot of what I also want to stress for people is in any relationship, oftentimes there are so many good times. There are so many good things. There are, and and I would tell um, people that you pick that partner because of the strengths you saw in that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to also acknowledge that, that they love that if that's where they are, that they love them and that they're really important to them in their lives. And they don't live constantly with abuse going on. Mm-hmm. Some people do. Every, every um, case is different. Yeah. Something that also caught my attention was the expectations that we have as outsiders for people that are in intimate partner violence situations. What are, I don't know, can you shed some light on what our expectations should be or should we be expecting anything from those relationships? I think what our society needs to expect is for people to stop abusing their partners. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the language that we hear is all about Um, victims and what they do, what they can't do, why don't they leave, um, what's wrong with them, when in fact, what we really need to be asking is, what is wrong with that person that they're able to do something like that to an intimate partner? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do, how do, how should we frame, I guess, the word that I want to say is abusers, but maybe there's even a better term. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about language for mm-hmm. victim and survivor and batterer um, and abuser. Those and and I'll start with the victim and survivor. I want to say something about that. Yeah. Um, because there there's some um, kind of discussion about they're not victims; they're survivors, and um, and that has changed throughout the years. Mm-hmm. However, we also have people who are victims who say, "I'm not a survivor. I am a victim. I am in a criminal case right now, or I am currently in a situation where I am being victimized." So um, it really is personal for people. Mm-hmm. So I always say, um, instead of victim or survivor, if you're working with somebody or talking to somebody, just use their name. Yeah. Yep. Um, And I would say the same thing um, if you're working with a victim and you're talking about their partner, use their name, use their partner's name. They are a person. They are a human being, even though they've done some really horrible things. Now, when it comes to the person who is being abusive and the um, or batterer, which is what we tend to call them, there's actually batterer's intervention. There's also a lot of discussion going on about what can we how can we reframe that? Because. We want batterers to go to treatment, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but 
that label is really harsh. Yeah. Um, and I don't really know the answer to, you know, what are some better ways to do that except use their name whenever possible. Um, so, uh, but otherwise, still in all the literature and the work that's being done, abuser mm-hmm. and batterer is usually what, what you hear. But I think it's very um, labeling and they are also more than a person who is battering their partner yeah. or being abusive. Mm-hmm. It takes all that, uh, yeah, that some of that, I don't want to call it gray area, but like I said, using the the name, the person's name is, I think, a, a great kind of rule to follow when working with anybody, you know, and so I think that really speaks to, I think that's a great idea. And I think that's something that's should be easily digestible for people to understand yeah. and to, and to do that. Or at least that's the hope you yes. would want it to be. That is the hope. Yeah. That is the hope. Uh, the titles too almost all seem limiting in a way as well, because we talk about batterers, but to me that brings up, uh, images of like physical violence only. Yes. Yeah. Like if you, I wouldn't call someone who's in an emotionally abusive relationship, a batterer, but batterer only to me brings up images of like punching maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then for victim, that's like definitely like the shifted power dynamic, but at the same time, some people don't want to be identified as victims, so they'll choose survivor maybe. It's just, I, I do like the just using people's names. It mm-hmm. also humanizes the whole situation because that's what we're dealing with is yes. humans mm-hmm. yes. we're working with. Yes, yes. And in any time we're working with people, we need to match their language. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, what they're saying and how they might identify is really important that we need to learn that from them. Yeah. What, how do you see this? Mm-hmm. And then use that language with them. Um, we, we touched on this a little bit, but who might become abusive if we move on to from from the person who's the victim or the survivor to the person who's abusing? What 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 who might become abusive? Um, so I'm not an expert in this area at all, um, because most of my work really has been done with working with um, victims. We do know that men who grow up in violent homes um, are more likely I think it's like 10% mm-hmm. more likely most do not mm. grow up to be yep. um, abusive to their partners. And the other thing that I really want to touch on at this point is all people who are abusive are not the same. We tend to, <clears throat> excuse me, we tend to put um, people who are abusive in a box and what they look like. And then we tend to put victims and what they look like in mm-hmm. a box. And we have these stereotypes. There are different motives Mm -hmm. for different types of people who abuse their partners. And for some, we know, um, for example, a survival, what we would call a survival-based batterer is um, somebody who depends on their partner so much that they really truly believe that they can't live without them. Hmm. And so what happens then when they can't live without them or they believe that and then they, um, you know, the the partner does want to leave. It's a very, very dangerous time for that person. But that person, that survival-based batterer, is very likely the reason that that person is behaving that way is because this person is the first person in their life. Their partner is the first person in their life that showed them love and cared about them, and they don't want to let that go. So that can really tell you a lot about their history and their um, childhood. Yeah, it, it also seems that we try to attach these broad labels like abuser to someone, but it sounds like even 
even situationally it can be different where like in every other aspect of their life they could be thriving seem really healthy from the outside but in each situation it can be different can can like circumstance activate kind of abusive behaviors or is it something you can always predict it's not something that you can always predict um if you have somebody who is sadistic which is the most rare the least common type of person that can be really really hard for people to predict but there are a lot of um, victims who can tell you when a b and c is happening i know um, that things are going to get really bad and this mm. person is going to um, become abusive. Is there, uh, and maybe I don't know if this is, they talk about, you know, previous trauma. So we're talking yeah. about um, the abuser or in the relationship. Is there any, I mean, I know like the adverse childhood experiences, right. things of that nature. Um, I bet that plays a large role in, you said it's at 10%. I don't know if I'm going to write the 10%, mm. but having those, that previous trauma can be not a predictor. I guess maybe it could be a predictor. It's not a guarantee, but it could give a little bit of an idea of maybe why they're behaving in that manner. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right? Um, yeah. So I hear, um, I'm hearing what you were asking now. Um, yeah, it can't, it, it does. And what we have learned is that one of the most important components for um, people who, or at least for men who mm -hmm. are abusive to their partner, is the relationship with their father. So if the relationship was not healthy or abusive, then that can um, definitely mm -hmm. impact them. And um, people who are abusive to their partners often have a really specific idea of what is right and what is wrong and what um, gender roles are mm -hmm. in yep. um, or partner roles even in our society. Yeah. Can we go more into like the black and white nature of that outlook on life? Um, I think that um, I what I am referring to is those who are abusive to their partners who um, have a sense of entitlement so there's another type, um, a person who is abusive, kind of a group that is called the entitlement-based mm. um, abuser or batterer. Um, and that is where they truly believe that they are king of the castle and that they are to make all the decisions, which plays right into the coercion and control. Um, and so they, when things aren't done the way that they want done, then they believe they have the right and they're entitled to um, be abusive. So we talked about an entitlement-based uh, abusers. Are there other types? Um, there are. And so the Family Peace Initiative in Topeka has done a lot of work and they've done research on um, recidivism rates for protection orders and being arrested with um, after somebody has completed a batter's intervention program. That's just what it's called. Yeah. So they they have um, they've done a lot of research and have they're they're not clear cut. So some kind of um, fade into each other, but sadistic based, entitlement based, and what did I say earlier? Sadistic entitlement. Survival based. Survival based. No. You yes. Got it. Yes. So we talked about entitlement based a little bit. That's 
where control is a really big aspect of that what survival based would be like they literally cannot live without the person they're abusing right they they think that they believe mm. that they believe that um they wouldn't be okay if their victim left them they also um you will hear from some victims that um the person abusing them is never remorseful but in a survival based um person they are they really do come across as very remorseful and they're truly remorseful because this person is, means so much to them that they feel awful once they have been um, violent they display extreme jealousy mm -hmm. um and they also blame their victim for how they feel about themselves and they're oh. so and they and they also express a lot of fear about abandonment and you you know you're going to leave me and I'm no, nothing without you and this is your fault and hmm. And with life going, you know, you, in, in relationship, if, you know, the more aspects in your life, say children, things of that nature, it gets even more difficult. I, I mean, that's that's what I think about is you got so many aspects to take into um, account when, say, you find yourself in a relationship of this manner. Um, uh, that's where my mind goes, you know, with with children, with things of that nature and job. I mean, just your vehicle i mean your your assets all that stuff it's just yes. it's so complicated it is very complicated mm -hmm. and it's it's just not simple no mm -hmm. and that's why i think it's they said having social work, having people that are there like the judgment piece that, that you talked about of what people don't need it, it it goes back to cole and i have created a training that we're giving to students and one of the videos they talk about judgment when they're talking of empathy and sympathy and they, Brene Brown is... It's yeah. from your class, actually. That's how I knew about it, is Brene Brown's video on yeah. sympathy versus empathy. And when she says, you know, try not to be judgmental, and that's hard based on how much we like to do that, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, that just, that that makes my eyes open up. Mm -hmm. and, I th and you just kind of think back, that's a true and accurate statement, unfortunately. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so just that reminder piece. But yeah, Brene Brown, like I said, we... Um, it's a great video. Um, we may even put a link to it in our bio and things. I mean, we can do all that kind of stuff too. But anyway, that, that judge, that's when, when you said the judgment piece, Yes, that's the first place I go to, you yes. know, it's like people tend to do it because I don't know if they like to, but it's just what we do as society a lot of times. It is what we do as human beings. Yep. So even when you find yourself being judgmental, I just encourage people to figure out where that's coming from. Mm -hmm. Um, because we're human, that's yep. what we do. Exactly, we um, we're always assessing and judging, and um, but it can be harmful. So just learning more about um, more about yourself, yeah, and where is this coming from? Well, we know we, where we get these stereotypes if we'll take a minute, yeah. and figure that out and um, have grace for yeah. people. I love that word, grace. I asked for it quite a bit, and um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. I think. Um, just as like a survival instinct, like categorizing really is good in a lot of ways. We will categorize things into like dangerous and safe just for our own survi survival. But then it becomes a problem when we put that on something that it doesn't belong on or will will create boundaries where like this person is only an abuser or this person is only a victim. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's um, something that's really important just to follow up on what both you were saying is that um, their lives are, are, all of our lives are complicated. But if we think about a person and all of the things in their environment, um, they are more than, you know, being abused or being abusive. Yep. Mm -hmm. And um, there are things that are more of a priority for one person than another. Yeah. I wonder too, um, as we're talking about how, how 
much more people are than just a victim or just an abuser when they're in the situation or in an abusive relationship does that kind of be taken away where like i am imagining like if i was in an abusive relationship that that is the most important thing and almost the defining aspect of my life is that relationship would i be right in saying that you would be right in saying that for some people mm. for some people it is not mm -hmm. some people are very focused on many other things and um hope that this will get better but it's not every day or it's not frequent mm -hmm. which also sounds to me why it might be so hard to identify is if 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 that isn't the defining factor of their life then maybe they're not even thinking about it as an abusive relationship right and then also to go back to um, if there's not a lot of physical violence sometimes people just do not recognize that this this behavior towards me by my partner is abusive mm -hmm. they just don't recognize it yeah i'm even thinking of the dynamic of how men and women are viewed different sexually like there's this idea that had been part of my upbringing where like women are always supposed to be sexually available to their partners and that's part of their role and so they can't even identify like even though that is literally an abusive behavior it's been marked as like good and supposed to happen yes yes mm -hmm. and i heard that from lots and lots of victims yeah um we a lot of times we frame the situation as like a male abuser and a female victim how does that change if a man is being abused or if it's in a queer relationship so we know very little about that mm. um because um there's been little attention, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, but the uh, abuse happens in all relationships, um, queer, straight, all of them. And um, the dynamics tend to be the same. It's a pattern of coercion and control over one partner over the other. Um, and, you know, a lot of they're not the same kind of services available for either the person who's being abusive or the victim in those cases. Mm -hmm. And um, actually the Kansas City Anti-Violence Project, which is, it's Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Kansas, they serve LGBTQ um, community. They're the only ones, and they're shared with Missouri. So I was gonna say the only ones in the state of Kansas that really you know focus on that, which I personally believe it's really important that we focus on that mm -hmm. and not ignore that because there are things that are unique to the population that we need to be informed of. Mm -hmm. I'm also wondering, because we had talked earlier about like Batterers Anonymous and groups that are for supportive batterers, are those primarily groups of men then? Yes. And so if a woman is needing treatment because she's um, displaying abusive behaviors, what would she do? There are groups. There are groups for women who are truly... Um, that fit the criteria. Um, in Kansas, there is literally an assessment process um, that is um, it's standard across the state and all programs are certified by the attorney general's office here. So there is, you know, standards. So they would have to, if it was female, they would have to meet the same criteria as um, anybody else. So whether they were LGBTQ, uh, male, female, whatever the case is, they would have to be um, screened in through the mm -hmm. assessment process. And they're they're more rare mm -hmm. than um, because a lot of times um, women will be arrested, for example, and it was self-defense 
or um, uh, or it was anger and not justified. So it could have been illegal, mm -hmm. but it's not something that is a pattern. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's different situations and and the assessment is set up in such a way that uh, the assessor should be able to determine whether or not this person belongs in a group or and they and we do know that a group is the best the um, best treatment really? modality for um, for the population of those that abuse their partners. And it sounds like too that a lot of the laws and a lot of the the um, I don't know the qualifications are kind of black and white, but it seems like so much of this is is gray area. Like it's really hard to like pin things down, but like with the law, that's what we try to do is pin something down, and like this is bad and this is how we deal with it. Right, right, and I think where um, things get um, really addressed is in the programs and when they're actually in a program mm -hmm. so that they can um, address each other and the social worker, you have to be, um, you have to have at least one LMSW who is in the, um, a facilitator of the group. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the real work comes. Um, and they can help people understand what their motives are mm -hmm. because these are all motivations mm -hmm. for those that, um, abuse their partners. Everybody has different motivation. Mm -hmm. Um, while I was thinking about the, the male aspect as, uh, being male victims, this even might be a question for Chris and I is how I'm wondering how society frames, um, domestic violence in a way that almost alienates male victims. You know, I do think that there is that stereotype that males just are not victims mm -hmm. and they can't be victims. And if you are a victim, it's your own fault. You allowed it to happen. I think people that's, that is the attitude a lot of people take on. And just as we're sitting here having this conversation and something cold that you just said about, you know, the black and white, you know, we have a group room full of social workers in here right now that have chosen to work with people. And in every aspect of people, there is, there's not a whole lot of black and white. There is a lot of gray area to work with people. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, that, those are just a couple things that go through my mind, but I do think, you know, the male as a victim is seen differently than as a female being a victim. If that's the term we want to use, but sitting through this and, and talking with, when, with what you're saying, Debbie, is that the abuse it's about, you know, the pattern, the power dynamics, it's, it's, it's all the same, you know, and I, and it just, I really, it doesn't matter a male, female, if you're a victim, you're a victim, or if you're, if you're in that situation, um, then that's just who you are. But I do think, I think it's, I do think it's seen differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there is also, you know, we have to, we can't ignore the fact that there is systemic, mm -hmm. um, power differentials yep. for, you know, between males and females in our society. And there mm -hmm. always has been, um, I think what, is concerning mostly is all those stereotypes and and how it keeps people from reaching out for assistance mm -hmm. and um, you know being embarrassed because you're already embarrassed if you're female but if you're male you're you know you are your expectations in our mm -hmm. society are still pretty um, pretty high for how a quote man should act yep. versus somebody else mm -hmm. and there are so for example here in manhattan if you're a male and you call to get services they're going to provide you services they're mm -hmm. going to do the same assessment process that you would do with anybody else um <clears throat> you wouldn't be able to go into a shelter here but they would provide um a hotel or yeah something like that if uh, if needed. There is one, as far as I my research has ever shown me, is there's one shelter in the country 
um, that is for males only because Mm -hmm. most of the, um, Mm -hmm. all of the shelters for um, intimate partner violence and sexual violence are for females. I would wonder too, with, with the one that on the side of the male, uh, you know, if, if, if the male was the one that was in, you know, that was experiencing the violence, the, the, or the trying to reach out for help, it may take them longer to reach out for that help. And so that violence, I don't want to say is more advanced, but they may be experiencing more violence because again, that societal view of, I should be able to handle because I'm the quote unquote man, I can't be the victim. But then when it does reach the, reach the part where they do need resources or help or treatment or whatever it is, um, it is more advanced. And then it's sometimes a little bit, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I want to say a little harder to try to, you know, work with that person, you know, or there, there's maybe some more things that they need to work on when they do reach out for those resources and treatment. Does that make, does that make sense? That does make sense. And I, um, I can tell you that I worked with one, one male, um, who identified as a victim and he would only talk to me on the phone. Mm-hmm. I asked to meet several times and he just refused. And, um, the embarrassment was overwhelming. It mm-hmm. is for almost everybody, yeah. but it was really overwhelming for him. And one of the things that always stuck out to me was what he said was, I was raised never mm-hmm. to raise a hand and do and and be respectful to women. Yeah. So it was just beyond him to think, which there's a lot of men who aren't raised that way. Yeah. So yeah. And my, my like the reason I bring that up is I worked in I did child abuse and neglect investigations for the state for six years, and in some of the communities that wanted to try to, um, if there was an abuse situation or neglect, the community would take care of it instead of reaching out for some professional help. Then when the professional help does get in there, there are many many more aspects and I want to say issues that we have to sort through because the abuse or neglect is so much advanced. I wonder if it would be the same thing with the. With the name of the male being victim, the the word that I thought to describe this, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is maybe the breaking point is because these expectations are like, oh, you're the man in the relationship, mm-hmm. you you can't be abused. Maybe the breaking point is so much further ahead. So once it finally does reach that, yeah, it can be really difficult. Not to compare it by any means, because every situation right. is yeah. is difficult. Um, another thing is, I mean not to get too personal, but I, I through one of your classes realized that um, a relationship that I had been in in the past had been abusive and I'm a gay male. So this is a little bit different for straight people is that like something that I would tell myself a lot would be like, oh, I need to be more powerful than this. Like I should be able to do this alone. Like I need to be the man in the relationship or I mean, granted it's both men, but like I need to be a man in this relationship and that I don't know. There's not a lot of threshold for male weakness. Like and it's almost that. as if the resources are, are, are pretty like we, I don't know. The whole situation is set up that like men aren't allowed to be weak, but that almost has to be an acknowledgement in order to get resources. Like it needs to be okay yeah. to be in a situation where you're not strong. Re- reducing <laughs> that stigma is, yes. you know, is, yes. is important for any, yeah. you know, for so many things. Mm-hmm. Yes. And let me just say, I'm sorry that you experienced that. Oh yeah, I, it, it's it's something that now is a scar and not a not a wound, if, to say the least. I've I've gone to counseling and therapy to um, kind of work through some of that, so I can 
talk about it and it's not something that's like raw i love that i know yeah i said that a couple times and i i've Mm -hmm. stolen it uh, (laughs) and used it well yeah i'm actually ironically like i have gone so like through manhattan christian college and one of the things that they say is preach from your scars not your wounds because you don't want i mean granted you should always be cognizant of things that might activate people that are listening to you but you don't want to I don't know, be activated yourself by the things that you're telling other people. Right, right. And that definitely needs to be a much safer place than, I don't know, than something that you have dealt with for a long time and yeah. something that you can kind of have learned how to cope with yeah. in a way. When Cole moves on to graduate school, this is the stuff that we're going to miss having him in our office. <laughs> yes, the, yes. The words and the wisdom that he has. Is what being, a gift, I right? It's been fantastic. Yes, yes. Yeah. I don't want to like spend this isn't specifically a podcast about like male intimate partner violence. I think that that can kind of get caught in the in the I don't know, like the male aspect of it can be kind of steamrolled through because people specifically men are Mm -hmm. willing to talk about it. And part part of that's on us. Right. And reducing the stigma for our friends and our our community. Right. Um, But moving on, what are regardless of the gender of the gender dynamic of the relationship, what are some warning signs that a friend or loved one may be able to see in an abusive relationship? Okay. So some of those things are when you see somebody putting their partner down in Mm. front of you, you know, they're making fun of them. Um, If your friend is always concerned that their partner is going to get mad at them for whatever it is they're doing, but they're like, Oh, you know, they're going to be mad if I do this, or they're going to be mad if I do that. Um, They make excuses for their partner's behavior is also another um, warning sign. Their partner is being extremely jealous and possessive. And, you know, we have we have now with um, technology, you know, there are uh, relationships where um, a partner is expected to take a picture of where they are if mm-hmm. they get to go with their friends oh. and what they're eating and what time it is, you know, all of those things that that controlling um, jealous jealous jealousy. Um, if you see unexplained marks or injuries, um, you know, if you, if you see that they have a black eye that's, you know, all the way across their nose, um, and they're, they're saying that, um, they ran into a wall or something. We don't, we Mm -hmm. don't get bruises like that from running into a wall. That would be definitely a red sign. Um, a really big one, which I talk about a lot is the isolation. So if your friend is no longer spending time with, um, you and their other friends and family, that can be a big sign. And, and don't get me wrong because when you're first in love with somebody mm-hmm. and you're first dating them, it is um, very common to kind of isolate together for just a little while while you're getting to know each other. Yep. But if that continues and you're in and, and you see your friends not actually even kind of allowed to be with other people, that's another warning sign. Um, and if you've noticed a really big change in their personality and they're depressed or more anxious, those are all some some signs that your friend is in trouble. Yeah, it sounds like something that most people would be able to pick up on. Like if you're going to out to eat with your friend and your friend is having to take pictures of where they are and who they're with and what they're eating, that would raise, I don't know, that that would raise a red flag in my mind. I think the important part is acknowledging that not only does it raise a red flag, but we should also be aware that it could be an intimate partner violence situation. Yes. I think yes. I, I'll push back a little bit on that with the question of with social media and things of that nature it can be easier to conceal that kind of behavior. If I'm taking, yeah, if I'm taking pictures where where I'm at, 
Um, and I don't want someone to know that I'm in a violent relationship. Oh, I'm just posting to Instagram or I'm taking a picture of my food and things of that nature. And then I, when we're talking about the isolation, think of the situation we're now with the pandemic where, you know, I know we're not always in a pandemic. Let's cross our fingers that we are not always in a pandemic. (laughs) But again, I think it's paying attention. Like I think you said, Debbie, about, um, the explanations, you know, of the isolation. And, um, again, I think that, like I said, not too much pushback, but some things are a little bit more easily concealed and people and people can explain them off a little easier. Mm-hmm. And so that's where, you know, those people that you do care about. I always tell people when you're going to have a, a conversation with someone that you're concerned about, um, transparency is your best friend. Yes. I, be transparent. Let them know this is not a time when you have a concern to try to hide things. You should tell everybody, be, be very transparent of why you have that concern. So, um not to be too difficult, but I, that's something yeah. that just kind yeah. of hit my mind. No, it, yes. it also reminded me too, is like with social media, a lot of people will post like their relationship status or pictures with their significant other. And it can give kind of the air that like, I mean, it's, it's a highlight reel. Social yeah. media is a highlight reel that their relationship is so good. And even that might be part of the manipulative aspect of it is like a curated social presence so that no one suspects, suspects what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Valid points. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so as as someone who is a bystander, how do you respond when you see these warning signs? Um, well, I think that, first of all, like we've already talked about, be non-judgmental. You know, just set your, if you've got some kind of value conflict going on, you know, set that aside. One thing that I want to say first, though, is if you have concerns about anybody being in a abusive relationship, do not talk to the two people together. Mm-hmm. That is a go-to for a lot of people. Like I'm going to talk to, you know, Joe and Samantha and because I'm really concerned about how he's treating her and I don't like it. Um, that can be really dangerous because Samantha's probably, if Joe's the one who's being abusive, Samantha's probably not going to be able to safely talk about anything and she will probably shut down even more mm-hmm. once. So I do want to say that, um, but be non-judgmental. Um, start where they are. So if 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 they open up to you, that's what you want to do. You want to say, "Can you, you know, please, uh, if, if if you're comfortable, you know, I'm, this is between you and I." Um, be supportive of whatever their decisions are. Mm. So they might have lots of reasons um, that they are, don't want to end a relationship. But if they do want to end the relationship, you know, be helpful as you can with that. Um, acknowledge what they're going through. Acknowledge how difficult it is to be in a in a relationship if they're if that's what they're saying. Um, you can encourage them to, um, you know, be involved in other things. Um, but that's you know, you just need to be really careful about what you're encouraging people to do because um, you don't want to just go in and say you need to do this, this, and this, and this. We don't need to tell people what to do Mm -hmm. that's they're not because if it doesn't work out whose fault is it it's Mm -hmm. your fault Mm -hmm. um help them develop a safety plan um and encourage them to talk to people who can really help and and provide them guidance and of course offer them um resources so um that is what you can do if you see you know warning signs or if you know that um and again it's not their fault Mm -hmm. Should you approach them? So we've talked about kind of if they open up, if if you're noticing these warning signs, should you start that conversation? If you can't, 
it, yes, if you can, um, in a private location without all your friends, it doesn't need to be, you know, you and seven of your friends. It doesn't need to be with the person and their partner. But if you can do it one-on-one and say, I've noticed these things and I'm concerned and this conversation can stay between us. And I think the mm-hmm. transparency thing is like, I'm really concerned about this. Mm-hmm. And if it's nothing, it's nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if it is something, then yeah. And um, I'm also thinking too, a lot of what we're talking about is um, if you if you have a relationship primarily with the victim, I'm wondering too, if you have a relationship primarily with the person who is abusing, um, like how, how do you approach someone who might be abusing their partner. Um, so this is where, I mean, you know, we know, we do know that men are in abusive relationships or in our victims, mm-hmm. but we do know that most are females. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, that's what we do know. Mm-hmm. And, um, so most of the time the person who's being abusive is a male. And so this is where we need people and men to step up mm-hmm. and, but you have to, you have to do it safely as well yep. and mm-hmm. not in a shaming, um, in a shaming way, mm-hmm. in a judgmental way, but to say, oh, wow, that really concerns me that you're calling her those names. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can do that in private as well, mm-hmm. um, and just find out what's going on and, you know, cause uh, many, many people who are abusive don't want to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't grow up saying, oh, I can't wait to grow up and be abusive to my partner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if like we, we primarily frame this as like a female situation. But if we expand it, that's something that can be a call to us as men to address. Well, to first be able to address our, our friends if they're in a, an abusive relationship, but also if they are showing abusive tendencies to kind of address that as well. Mm hmm. And not laugh it off mm-hmm. and think, oh, isn't that funny? Or that's just, yeah. that's just Billy. That's what he does mm-hmm. um, to make it not okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad too. Uh, something you mentioned about the, the man that you had provided services to is that he was taught, you know, never to lay a finger on a woman and not everybody has an upbringing that is like that, yes. <laughs> unfortunately. So I think learning how to have those conversations with your friends that are, that's not easy. It's a lot easier to laugh it off, but learning how to have those conversations is really important for mm-hmm. everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we have had this conversation, we've I noticed the red signs, or sorry, the red flags, we've noticed the red flags, we've um, approached them. What resources are available? Like what should we, wh- how do we help guide someone through that process? Right. Um, so and another thing I want to say before we go on to that is that you can't save anybody. So mm-hmm. don't think you're going to go in there and save somebody. That's really offensive Hmm. And to think that you're going to take over somebody's life and save them and people have their own agency. And um, when somebody's in an abusive relationship, the idea of somebody coming to control them is is exactly what they're experiencing. So they don't want to experience it again. Um, But there are a lot of resources Um, I wish there were more resources for um, people who are abusive, Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, for victims, there's still, you know, a lot of um, resources for them. And so 
one of the things is um, if you went to kcsdv.org, they have all the, in Kansas, they have a map of all the victim service providers for um, intimate partner violence and sexual violence in Kansas. And I think there's about 30 different programs. And those programs can help you with all kinds of things. A, when you get services from, and that's something that would be really helpful to tell your friends if you were talking to your friend, that um, going to something like the crisis center here in Manhattan doesn't mean you have to go to shelter. That is not the only service that's available. That's usually the last thing that people want to do, but it's a great service to have if, if necessary. But you can get, you know, there's support groups, there's um, advocacy within the community. So, you know, they can help you get set up with child care and, you know, other things mm -hmm. that you need. Um, they can help you with protection from abuse orders. And I would say to any friend, do not walk through a protection order process with um, a victim without having them go through an advocate first because it can increase mm -hmm. the danger if um, somebody goes just because that's a go to too for people. Call the police, get a protection order and go to shelter. Mm -hmm. And those are all, you know, incredibly large, large life changing yeah. steps that could increase the danger and can be um, really, really hard. So um, so there's lots of services available. They would walk through um, what the pros and cons of protection order would be if you went to someplace like the crisis center yeah. or something across the state. Um, and then there's a care office here mm -hmm. um, on campus here at K-State. So that's a resource. I like what you said about working with an advocacy group um, mm -hmm. because that is... They're, they're the subject matter experts and they will be able, you know, just like anything that's relatively new, because maybe this might, if you're working with a friend, it's the first time you've worked with somebody or tried to help somebody, there are pitfalls that you can fall into mm -hmm. that are really easy to miss or maybe you didn't, you couldn't think about. So yes. I really like the working with an advocacy agency, yes. like the care team, like the crisis center. Yes. This is what they do. Yes. The ones I've worked with, with as a social worker. They've been great. Mm -hmm. And so um, I really like that, that that is something you can be there as you can be a support with them as a friend, but they can also have an advocate um, there to help them in that aspect, too. Right, right. And another advantage of working with an advocate is they have different confidentiality guidelines mm -hmm. than lots and lots of people. Yep. So um, they can keep, you know, um, what you're talking about confidential with limitations, mm -hmm. of course, child abuse yeah. and uh, elder abuse and things like that, homicidal, suicidal thoughts. But um, so, yeah, I um, I really encourage people to um, hook up with an, an advocate. But there are also um, national hotlines. It's it's anonymous. You can just call and just talk. Um, most of the websites now you go on, there's a button immediately pops up, says if you're not safe, um, you know, hit this button and Somehow they've got it figured out how to clear it so that if your partner looks to see where you've been, mm -hmm. you can't see. That's all magic to me. It's above my pay grade how mm -hmm. that all works, but it helps with safety. Yeah. So things like that. Mm -hmm. Something else that we've been stressing is that as community members, we need to not bite off more than we can chew. So we're offering ways to um, help someone as a bystander, but unless you are a social worker, unless you are a, uh, like a therapist, 
the best thing that you can do is to connect them to someone who is one of those things, like an advocate, like you said. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes. Because they, they, they're they doing an assessment too, trying to yep. figure out who you are, what are your needs, um, and, and doing those things like anybody else who does assessments. Mm -hmm. Advocates are doing that. So um, in, in your experience, what if we... Let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, maybe I do need to reach out. Could we walk them through maybe what that process would look like so it's not as scary when they get there? Um, so I can speak for what it would look like for a local community organization, something like the Crisis Center. Mm -hmm. um, you would you would call um, and you would be asked a few questions like, what's your name? What's going on? Are mm -hmm. you safe right now? Um, that's, oh, you know, we're just trained to ask first and foremost, are you safe right now? Yeah. And an advocate would find, try to, you know what, I don't know what's happening with the pandemic, though, how they're doing that. But normally you would um, try to find a safe place to meet with them that's confidential. Mm. Um, so it could be in a, the administrative offices where um, they would meet um, and then they would just do an intake like any, you know, um, and assure confidentiality and talk to them about what it is that they need and how they can help. And I think one of the most important things is it's um, uh, a neutral person mm -hmm. who can listen to whatever is going on. And they're not constricted by time usually. Mm hmm you know, it's not an hourly thing or anything like that. They so they can listen to you mm -hmm. um, in a non-judgmental. I think that's something too. Like Cole, I think you touched on it. Uh, if you're in a in a relationship where there's violence, if I'm a friend, there's a high chance that I have a relationship with both parties involved. Yes, mm -hmm. and that's where that neutral party <clears throat> I think is really really important to have. And then myself, if I have if I see somebody I have concerns about. And they work through an advocacy group, which is highly encouraged. Myself as a friend, I think I need to realize, or someone that wants help, I need to realize there are things that that person that's in that relationship may want to share with an advocate and not with me yes. for those confidentiality reasons, yes. for that dual relationship that we might have. Um, and there are other roles you as a friend can take on. You don't have, you know, that respect factor, respect yes. what they want. They are, they are, they're the ones that are in this situation. We need to, we need to respect them. So, yes. Um, yes. so yeah, that's where that, that neutral party, I think is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm also thinking too, um, a lot of the ways that we try to frame mental health questions and, and, uh, just some of the questions they may ask is it's very similar to how people like a doctor would ask about physical ailments. Like how long has this been happening? When did it start? How often does it affect you? So the questions are naturally a little bit more hard to answer, but they're for your treatment and for like, I don't know, to help you, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. it's very similar as to the way doctors ask about mm -hmm. an illness that you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. We, and that's exactly what they, they're going to ask you. Like what's been going on? How mm. long has it been going mm -hmm. on? What does the violence look like? How frequent is it? Is he jealous or mm -hmm. is she jealous? Mm -hmm. um, do, do they use chronic drugs and alcohol? Um, never, ever an excuse or a reason, but it can definitely increase the lethality. Mm -hmm. Hey everybody, it's Cole. After talking with Debbie, we wanted to clarify that the only similarity between seeing a doctor and seeing an advocate is that both have expertise in their field and will assist you in evaluating your needs and exploring your options. We did not at all want to give the impression that being a victim of intimate partner violence means one has an illness. We've talked a lot about this as well. Um, it sounds 
in in this situation, the escape plan, a lot of that, like a really in-depth escape plan should be done with an advocate or with a social worker. Um, should that be done as a bystander as well? I think that anybody can have a conversation with the person about what are you doing to be safe mm -hmm. or, and also we, this another comment about language. We say, you know, we want you to be safe. And the only person that's going to make sure that that victim is safe is the person who is being abusive. They're responsible 100% for any violence and the person's safety. Mm -hmm. So I try to remember to say safer. How can, you know, you be safer? Mm -hmm. Um, because that's more realistic. Um, but I, I would encourage you to refer them to an advocate to do in-depth um, safety planning. And um, if they plan on leaving, um, walking through that with um, an advocate, if should at all you, possible. Should you offer, I mean, granted, this is a college campus. And so people's situation might be different, but like offer your friend to as an escape plan yourself. Like, can you stay with us if you feel like it's unsafe? Is that something that you should offer? Okay, I'm going to say it depends on the situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It depends on what kind of violence is occurring. If it's um, if it's high risk and there's weapons have yeah. been involved and things like that, you have to take into consideration your own safety and your family's safety. And it's really common as well for... Um, uh, somebody who's being abusive, if they're concerned that their partner is getting ready to leave, um, it's very common for them to go after their friends, go yeah. after the moms. Mm. The moms, um, they like to hurt the moms. And so it can increase your danger. Um, but, it, but it depends on the, um, you know, the level of violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like um, if if in the relationship, the person who's being abusive knows about you as being their friend. That might be the first place they look yes. for them if they need to get away. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so moving on to kind of misconceptions about intimate partner violence, what are some common misconceptions that you see? We've talked about some of them here, but mm -hmm. what are some common misconceptions? Well, that all that they all are, um, you know, they start, um, you know, with low violence and then move up to extreme violence that all um, people who are abusive are the same. Um, another misconception is that there's something wrong with the people who are being victimized. Mm -hmm. um, it can happen to anybody. Yeah. Anybody. Mm -hmm. And um, you're more likely to hear about it, though, if they are um, low income and don't have resources mm -hmm. and and, um, you know, they might need to go to shelter. Oh, Cool. There's so many misconceptions about yeah. intimate partner violence, but mostly that it's 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 individual. And that's what we've learned over the years is that it is not it doesn't fit into a box um, and that there's still a lot of victim blaming mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. happens in our society versus holding somebody accountable. Yeah. And, and blaming. I don't know. Part of what we try to share, too, in, in our presentations about mental health is that sometimes from an outsider perspective, you could you can kind of draw up in your mind like what they could have done differently, but that isn't really that helpful. Because to you, it's just like, oh, just leave the relationship. Yes. But it's never that simple. And like just saying that can be so invalidating due to what they're experiencing. Yes, yes. And kind of following up what you were saying earlier about um, you just don't know everything when we we're talking about social media. Mm-hmm. I can guarantee that you you don't know everything that's oh. happening in that relationship. You see 
the outside looking in and and people aren't going to just tell you everything um, nobody does that yeah. that's not human nature um, to tell you everything about yourself so and that's one thing we put like with the, with the trainings that we've been putting together for students on campus we we kind of provide a challenge to them to be a good community member and part of that is knowing resources or knowing where to find the resources for any situation that arises. Mm -hmm. Just like I said, intimate partner violence can affect anybody, any relationship at any time. Yes. Um, and so that's kind of, and that is part of our goal too, is getting resources out there so people know how to find them, where to, you know, where to find the phone numbers, all that kind of good stuff. And so that's kind of been our, our one thing we've been really putting out to students, faculty and staff is we want you to be a good community member. Part of that is knowing where resources are for intimate partner violence or for mental health concerns or physical ailments, you know, and we put together a lot of stuff just that's a one stop shop. And so, um, as I said, that's just part of being we want to raise the level of community member and the expectation a little good. bit. Good. Um, I was also wondering, um, could you tell us some about like the cycle of abuse or a lot of these things can be cyclical. What does the cycle of abuse look like? Okay. So the cycle of abuse is a theory that was done after some research with about a hundred women mm -hmm. by Lenore Walker. And, um, what they discovered was for some women, there's a pattern of abuse mm. and it starts off with, um, an abusive incident where one partner is abusive to the other physically, usually. And then after that, there is a what's called a honeymoon phase. And um, that's where often what you will hear is the partner is really sorry for what they did. They'll never do it again. Um, and they will do things like uh, help you, um, you know, help you with your homework, say, go see your mom whenever you want. It's all okay. I'm not going to do these things anymore and hang out with your friends, go on out. And then eventually it moves into what's called the tension building phase. And that is where um, the person who is abusive starts displaying behaviors that cause the victim to be concerned because they've recognized this pattern of um, their behavior. And um, this is also, you will hear people say this is the walking on eggshells mm -hmm. um, uh, phase. And then there will be another acute incident. And then it will go around like that again. So acute incident, honeymoon phase, um, tension building phase, and so on. So, but what we know and what we've learned is that not all women or people in uh, abusive relationships can relate to that. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who say, I've never been apologized to, mm -hmm. ever. I There's never been a honeymoon phase. It's just been this way. So we do know that some women can relate to that. So that's one of the benefits of being with an advocate because they can kind of look at um, what's happening and what is the offender's behaviors so that we can help safety plan according to the behaviors of your offender. Mm -hmm. I, I also wonder about like repeated incidents where someone would either go back to an abusive partner or would find another abusive partner. Can you shed some light on that as well? Um, it's very common to um, to go back um, from 
so many different reasons mm -hmm. um, because you believe that person is different because you love that person mm -hmm. um, because you need that person for some reason or another because you have kids and so on um, it's very common to do that and um, it's also when we see people who go into a new relationship and it's abusive um, we know that that's usually because offenders can see people's vulnerabilities. Um, so that's that's also very common. Um, I had a thought that I wanted to. I... A question I also had then is this idea of grooming that I've heard before where people will kind of, people that are abusive might like kind of test the waters with people before they engage with them in a relationship to see if they're someone that they can control. I don't know. I don't know. I do know that um, you don't ever go on a first date and get beat up mm -hmm. and raped and mm -hmm. then go out on another date. Yeah. Um, so it usually is some kind of um, gradual mm -hmm. abuse. It, you know, it starts out very small usually um, before it gets more um, violent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of moving to the macro level. How do we as a, as a society prevent abuse? I think that um, we need to be looking at how our children are being raised and um, looking at, you know, that violence is not okay, that bullying is not okay, and, um, and treating people equally, mm. males, females, Mm -hmm. um, and all, all genders mm -hmm. and, um, uh, not rewarding that kind of behavior. Um, and then, you know, when it is happening to respond appropriately to the people who are doing it, mm -hmm. um, because I, you know, um, a very wise friend said to me one time, um, you know, you can take all the victims of intimate partner violence in the United States and put them on an island and give them, take their kids with them and give them everything they want, massages, all the food they want, being cared for however they might want. And in the end, you haven't ended intimate partner violence because all the people who are abusive are still here. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, that's what I was, um, I forgot to say earlier, is that um, I left the crisis center um, for a couple when I went to the Department of Corrections mm -hmm. and I came back for a couple years and um, realized quickly that we were working with different victims of the same offender. Oh, mm -hmm. So I wanted to just kind of flip that as well. Um, so it's really common to see one offender have six, seven, eight victims. Mm -hmm. um, and but because there's not accountability to that person mm -hmm. um, so that their behavior is stopped mm -hmm. and not rewarded or minimized. I think what happens mostly in our society is that it is uh, minimized. So there are laws that need to be strengthened. There are policies within agencies that mm -hmm. need to be strengthened. Even if you think about community corrections or probation or parole, you know, how are you responding? Are you minimizing the fact that, you know, the offender might have been arrested on Friday for a fight? with his partner or are you looking at it and getting this person help? Yep. Mm -hmm. So those are some ideas. Yeah. Shifting the focus to, it seems to preventing offenders from 
becoming offenders yes. or from developing in a way that that causes them to be abusive. I think that even goes through, especially on the men's side as well. Like if your friend is roofing someone, that is not good behavior. Right. <laughs> that is right. not good. Right. No. Right. Mm -hmm. It's and illegal. It, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. It's dangerous. Yeah. Yes. And it's something that needs to be addressed. And it's something that maybe as someone you're close to that you can have a lot more say into their life than a random official somewhere, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. or practitioner. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't think of any other questions. Do you have a like any final words to say or anything you'd like to touch on at the end? That's a lot of pressure there, Cole. <laughs> oh well, you can think about it too. Yeah. Um, no, I I I just think that I appreciate this opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, I want so much to know that if you're in an abusive relationship, that you're not alone, and that if you are abusing somebody, you're not alone. There's there is help out there. It's limited, but. Um, you can get it. You can stop being abusive. Mm -hmm. um, there's been really good results um, from some of the programs in mm -hmm. Kansas. So um, it just it's something that I'm really happy to, you know, shine a light on. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. it still exists so yeah. much. Um, so, yeah, that's what I would say. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.